0: Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Ben Hogan Golf, 2under, TaylorMade Golf, and golf pride. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro.
1: Good evening, folks, and thank you for being here. It's always a privilege getting to share this time with you. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to one of our new sponsors here on the show, the Macklemore, which is a beautiful community resort and golf course. Just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee on Lookout Mountain. And folks, You've got to see this place to believe it. Go look it up online at themacklemore.com. Everything about what they have up there is beautiful. The golf course is designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. Our friend Kip Henley said on Twitter a few weeks ago that outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. See why he says that by checking out the course and the resort online at themacklemore.com. Okay, on to tonight. And my first guest is going to be Marco Iannuzzi. Marco's been a wonderful friend over on the football side on our show Thursday Night Tailgate for several years. Marco played wide receiver for the B.C. Lions in the Canadian Football League from 2011 to 2017. Played his college football at Harvard and was cross-registered at MIT. And he put that education to great use back in 2015 when he was named Canada's smartest person on a game show that airs up there. Dropped the people's elbow for the win, which was fantastic. Marco does a lot of great work for charity. He's been the chairman of the Vancouver chapter for L's for Autism. He's also done some great work and been a board member for the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada. He's now CFO and managing partner for Beautiful Game Group LLC, which is a private equity company investing in pro sports teams. So a lot to get into with Marco when he joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a visit from one of the hosts of the Golf Channel's Morning Drive show, and that's Damon Hack. Damon also works with our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, on his golf game. So we'll talk with Damon about what it's like working with TP. We'll also talk about the show he hosted last night on the Golf Channel, Race and Sports in America. He talked about the racial issues that we're dealing with right now in our country, and among the people that he had on his panels were Charles Barkley, Ozzie Smith, Steph Curry, and Anthony Lynn, among others. So we'll dive into that, plus hear about some of the issues that Damon has had to deal with in his life when he joins me about 25 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Teen as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Want to start out by saying hello and thank you to my friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence and remind you about their great golf shows. Mitch's podcast is called Talking Golf Getaways, which you can stream online at GolfTripX.com. Also available over on Audioboom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. He and his co-host, Darren Bunch, are going to take you around the U.S. and Canada to some of the great places that you can go stay and play. They're also going to let you know about some of the hidden gem courses that you might not be aware of. Go online and stream their podcast at GolfTripX.com. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. It's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern Tea time. You can stream the show live by going online to WLXG.com or downloading the WLXG app. features our good friend Perry French in the first segment every week, so you know a lot of great tips and information are going to come your way right at the top of their show. Matthew has a bunch of other really great guests as well, and he's a wonderful friend and a fantastic host. Check out his show Backspin Golf on ESPN Radio, WLXG, and WLXG.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and the TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X golf balls played by Ricky Fowler, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf, and you know those names, but thousands of other golfers have already made the switch over to TP5 and TP5X, and they're now available in high visibility yellow, and you guys know how much I love the yellow golf ball. Are you the next to make the switch? Check it out online by going to taylormadegolf.com for more information. All right, now joining me here is former BC Lions wide receiver Marco Iannucci. Let me give you some more background on Marco. He's from Calgary, Alberta. He went to college here in the States at Harvard and MIT, he played his college ball there at Harvard, where he is still the all-time leader in kickoff return yards average, which he was helped by a 95-yard kickoff return for a touchdown against Brown back in 2010. That year. He averaged 34.5 yards per return, which set the record for the highest single-season average there as well. He was a first-round draft pick, the number six overall selection by the B.C. Lions in the 2011 CFL draft. And I'm sure it was no coincidence that the Lions went on to win the Grey Cup that season. Played for the Lions from 2011 to 2017. Marco is also one of the most philanthropic guys that you'll find anywhere. He's doing wonderful things to help fight things like MS, autism, homophobia, environmental issues, and a bunch more. Does work for the BC Children's Hospital and also the Children's Hospice there in Vancouver. 2016, he was the recipient of the Tom Pate Memorial Award, which is given annually to the player who displays outstanding sportsmanship, made a significant contribution to the league and to his community as well. He's also partnered with Ernie Els and been the chairman of the Els for Autism chapter there in Vancouver. And if all of that wasn't enough, he won the title of Canada's smartest person on a TV show of the same name, which aired up in Canada on CBC. Marco joined us several times over on the football side on our show Thursday Night Tailgate, many of those times when he was on the team bus after a game. I'm very honored he's with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Marco, how are you, my friend?
2: I'm I'm doing well. Thanks thanks for having me. You just I was just telling my wife that last a few times ago when I talked to you I was on the tour bus or I was on the team bus on the way back from uh, a game in Saskatchewan. So yeah, funny you brought that up.
1: So, Marco, for our audience on this side, let's let's kind of go back to when you were a kid. We obviously know what a wonderful football player you are now, but talk about the other sports that you played when you were a kid and then at what point did golf become something for you?
2: Yeah, uh well that's an easy answer. I played every single sport possible. I mean, um you know, when I was when I was younger, I can remember my first childhood memories actually of my mother and I playing uh ball hockey in our in our backyard and I remember it there was two yellow hockey sticks and orange ball uh and it was one of my, you know, coolest and first childhood memories and, and fast forward a year, I remember I waited for the snow to melt in Calgary which sometimes can be as late as May uh and uh Snow melted, went out, grabbed the two yellow sticks, the orange ball, called my mom out to play, and uh, she was diagnosed with MS over that year, and and it became difficult for her to walk, so she slowly made her way out to the porch and slowly sat down, and she told me two things that day. She said, sometimes your body doesn't allow you to do the things you want it to do, so make sure you train your mind as well, Uh, and even though, the second thing she said was, even though I can't play with you today, it brings me great joy to watch you play, so From that day on, you know, whether I was on a track, uh, a volleyball court, uh, badminton, football, basketball, baseball, I literally played every single sport. Um, And golf was just a small part. We didn't really have a lot of money growing up, and courses were quite expensive in Calgary since the season, the golf season's only, you know, three, four months long, to say. So I played uh, twilight father-son golf with my dad as much as we could uh, over at the course, which was about 20 minutes from our house called Valley Ridge, beautiful little track. But, but that was the extent of golf that I played growing up. Uh, and I didn't revisit golf until when I came out to play pro. And after, you know, you made it through training camp, uh, the first week of season, then, then the veterans sort of come over to me and say, Hey, just let you know on, on day one and day two of the week, we go golf at this course if you want to come out. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell, how I, how I came to find golf.
1: So were you self-taught? Did you start taking lessons? How did you become good?
2: Well, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't call myself a, 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 an amazing golfer, but I, I play around 30 charity events a year, lots of best ball. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, so when I had myself taught. I kind of picked up from the guys around me. I had some some real b- good um, guys who had played in the league, uh, CFL and NFL, and, and they'd been playing so much golf that, they had uh learned along their paths you know from wherever, so i I picked up as many tips as I could from them. I always felt for me golf was a time for me to not be coached and for a time for me to not be competitive to almost just totally relax and uh uh clear my mind so I, I always kind of stayed away from traditional coaching now I did do a couple of golf tech sessions where I had the, you know the whole video analysis done um, but what I really didn't like is they were trying, they were literally trying to make me swing like Ernie L's. They had me lined up next to Ernie Els and swinging it. And, and I said, you know, when I was playing football, I didn't want, I sure I liked Barry Sanders and I liked Deion Sanders, but I didn't want to be just like them. I wanted to be my own player and I want to have my own attributes. So, um, I took as much as I could from the guys around me. I took as much as I could from those couple lessons and I built my own golf swing. Uh, and, and I like to call it, I, I just became an athlete and, and, over time, it became more of a golf-orientated swing, but at the beginning days, it was, just, it was just being an athlete and making sure that face aligned.
1: Marco, I want to go back to a comment that you made a moment ago that your mom said to you about developing your mind. And like I say in your intro, you, you went to Harvard, you cross-registered at MIT. Talk about developing mm-hmm. your mind and, and education and what drove you to attend You know, arguably the, the two top colleges on the planet.
2: Well, you know, first of all, let me back up and tell you, it took me three times to get in. Um, And so the first time when I tried to get in, uh, I was I was really just trying to, you know, check all the boxes that Harvard wanted. And when I showed up, they kind of looked at me and said, you know, uh, you're not good enough type thing, move on. And I said, you know, I I was almost into Harvard, I got to figure out a way to do this. So why don't I go back and, and sort of Make myself more diversified. They told me I was like a piece of paper. I was an athlete on one side and I was an academic on the other side. And I'd realized I had to have more to me. And so that's what I did for the next year. I went and I managed a restaurant. Um, I went and I upgraded some uh, academics and, and reapplied to Harvard and kind of the same people are in the room for the admissions office. And they kind of at me like, oh, we remember you. But at that time, they said, you know, you've been too far out of academia. So You know, it's not going to work for you. You should move on. And now when I I thought along that way, I had beautiful offers because I played junior football. We won a national championship and I went to prep school and we did really well. And so I had offers to go to Notre Dame, Full Ride and Purdue and Boise State. And the sort of mentors or people surrounding me in my life, some of them said to me that I was crazy to turn these down at this hopeful chance of getting into Harvard. But I'll tell you there was one moment specifically. I was I was on a on a trip in Mexico with my buds after 12th grade. We all went 45 of us down to Mexico. And there was a language barrier at the resort between some of the guests, between some of the locals and so on and so forth. And when we were all trying to figure out, you know, where each other was from, someone said, "Hey, this guy's trying to go to Harvard about me." And as soon as the Harvard came up, every person no matter where they were from on the globe, what language they were speaking, they knew what Harvard was. And at that moment, I knew it was special. It was almost an international language, almost a, uh, an international uh, known boys club or, or, you know, men and women's club that, that it was something special and it was something to strive for. So two times not getting into Harvard, I showed up the third time and they looked at me and they had 300 pages of application, 100 pages from each year. And they just said, hey, listen, if we just let you in, will you stop sending us applications?
1: <laughs> Good for you with the perseverance. <laughs> so um, Marco, and, and you had a remarkable playing career there at Harvard. Um, probably one of the best you know, kick returners in the history of the Ivy League. Um, you returned a, a, an 84-yard kickoff. Uh, for a touchdown in the second half and a game against Yale, your senior season. And that Harvard-Yale, obviously, is, you know, quote-unquote, the game. So I wanted to get your thoughts for this audience. What was it like being a part of the game for the years that you were there?
2: You know, it was it was cool. I mean, the, so the Harvard fight song is called 10,000 Men. And you're supposed to, every time you put on your helmet, you think about the 10,000 men that came before you. And uh, when I was in high school, we had, 40 years of history, and we were told to think about the 2,000 men that came before us. And so being part of, at that time, I was part of the 127th playing of the game. And uh, I remember it, Actually, funny, I just spoke to our, our captain of the team today about, about my other venture earlier today, But and I was reminiscing with him about the cover of that magazine. Um, and just when you walk out of the stadium, the stadium, for those of you who don't know, it's built after the Coliseum. So it's like it's got this sense to it. its old concrete and you walk out and you look at everyone out there. And not only do you feel like you're p- part of something bigger than yourself because you're staring at 34,000 fans, but you feel like you're bigger because y- you you know the campus you're on, you know, the people that came before you, the presidents that went to the school, the actors, the, you name it, the people who have had so much change on this and so much impact on this planet. You really feel like you're playing for all of them, whether they're, they're watching or not. And so uh, I remember I, I had the shoulder surgery in that year. It was my third shoulder surgery of, of my four years in university. And uh, I hadn't played in six weeks. And, uh, it, the, the surgery was supposed to be an eight week recovery time before you started doing activity. And this was six weeks later and I was in a game. <laughs> so wow. I went, I remember at halftime, I went, I went to the head coach and I just looked him in the eyes, Coach Murphy, and he did a lot for me in my life. And I said, coach, I'm ready. And so, you know, we, we, we drew up the sort of the play on, uh, for, for the kick return. And when I got that ball, it was like, it was like a mixture of like, the loudest moment ever, and the most silent moment ever. Um, It it Literally, I feel like it was out of my body. I feel like my memory of it right now is is almost of like the video footage. And when I got that ball, I, I literally followed the exact lines that were drawn on the whiteboard. And I can remember every step. I probably took 27 steps to get myself to the opening. And, you know, it was just a few more steps to get to the end zone from there. And, and I kid you not, like the, every moment, every step, I was, I was living it as if it was like a, a 10 second moment and, and living it for all the people in that stadium. And I remember I had 27, uh, or no, so I had 64 friends and family there from Calgary and all over Canada. And they had all their, their video camera phones on it. And, uh, and to, to relive that moment from all of their vantage points in the stadium, it, it, Perhaps maybe clouded my memory, but made it more slower and real. But I can tell you, it was just such a special moment to play for for all those people I just mentioned.
1: Wow, what a moment. So with all of those vantage points, have you put that together? It seems like that would be a heck of a keepsake by being able to see all of those videos and kind of compiled together to see what it was like. And for you, like you mentioned, you sort of get to relive it and have that burned into your memory. Have you done that?
2: Well, on my, on, on YouTube, if you, if you look up, I think it's uh, titled, uh, my little brother uploaded it on my, my, uh, YouTube page years ago. I think it's called the, the most exciting NCAA play or most exciting football play ever. It's on my, my YouTube page. And, uh, it starts out really dark until the light sort of kicks in. But you, the audio and, and, uh, even the visual towards the last 10 seconds of it that one is the one that's uploaded online. And that one there gives me goosebumps every time I look at it. Um, We also have the version that's sort of narrated uh, each year. The Harvard highlight tape is narrated by, uh, you know, some famous, uh, famous NFL voices, the guy that does the NFL history uh, um, uh, narration and voiceover. And so I have that kind of audio in my head at the same time. And between the two of those are both online there. Uh, those are the two visuals I have now, but you know what? I should, I should get all those together and put them in one little clip.
1: So you go from there to being a first round draft pick, the number six overall selection by the BC Lions. What is that like?
2: Well, you know, so first game we, uh, we lost second game. We lost third game. We lost first five games of the season. We lost in my first, a uh, live interview on, on TSN, which is the equivalent of ESPN down there. Um, the guy puts the microphone on my face and he says, Marco, uh, you were the first round draft pick. Your hometown, Calgary, passed you up in the first round. You're now on the BC Lions, and this is the worst team that the Lions have ever had in 60 years how does it feel to be a BC Lion? <laughs> this is my first uh, <laughs> Brutal. interview, right? Alive. Uh, <laughs> and I am like, oh my gosh, right? So now fast forward to the end of that year, we went actually, we we um, won every single game from that point on. And we won the Great Cup and we actually hosted the Great Cup in our, in our home city here in Vancouver. And uh, the same reporter came up to me,
0: the confetti
2: is literally falling on our heads. And he puts a mic in front of me and he says, Hey this whole province has believed in you guys since day one. How does it feel to be a breakup <laughs> champion <laughs> so i'll tell you though uh, <laughs> uh through that whole season the the cool part and just to relate it back to golf is uh we had such a core we we literally had the greatest um, greatest of all time Canadian football receiver geroy simon uh equivalent of of jerry rice um and and g Roy, I was playing like not behind G-Roy, but sort of I was on the same lineup as him. And he taught me so much. In fact, he was the guy that came to me in the early uh, parts of the season when we were, especially when we were losing there. And he said, hey, you should come out and golf with us. And I didn't even have clubs, right? Because I didn't golf since I was a kid. And he said, hey, man, I'll, I'll give you these old clubs. And I was like, oh, cool. I get G-Roy Simon. I, I watched G-Roy Simon as a kid, you know, like, and now I'm playing alongside of him and he's giving me his golf clubs, and I go out and play. So we play our first round and, and, uh, I do okay, whatever. Then the next round we play, I, I get a little bit better Then then finally we start playing skins, right? Cause I knew I wasn't going to win on raw score, but maybe I can steal some skins from these guys. So I start playing skins with them. And, and on that third time, I, I actually got, I got you for a little bit of cash. Right. And so we get to the end of the game and he goes, uh, it was, he, I'll never forget it, it was 400 bucks. And he goes, all right. Um, uh, he goes, uh, no, he goes, you owe me a hundred bucks. Or so I said, I owe you a hundred bucks. He goes, no, no, you owe me 400. I said, what do you mean? It's a <laughs> hundred. And he goes, oh, you got to, you also got to pay me for those clubs that I gave you last week. Oh,
1: that's wrong.
2: So he was, he was so mad that I'd beat him that all of a sudden he charged me for the clubs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's wrong. Oh, in so many ways.
2: No, that no, so, was good. He was. It was a. It was a great group of guys, and and they, we all stuck together on the golf course, and and it translated to the field. I kid you not. And and truly, truly a real team effort, and, and a solid group of guys to learn from.
1: So speaking of skins game, you uh you've been out playing in a tournament that uh, was a skins tournament here recently as well. Talk about that.
2: Yeah, you know, I I just got back this last weekend. Uh, the twenty sixth year of the Boza Open. Boza is a uh, one of the largest developers here in in Western Canada, um, and so it's a very tight tournament. There's 24 guys invited. It's mostly uh, you know the family members. There's a few uh, a few other people, and I'm one of the guys that got in. They they were actually one of the the platinum sponsors of the BC Lions while I was playing, and so uh, again it's it's a raw score tournament. But um, amongst all these four rounds, we play two two games at uh, Whistler Course, which is an Arnold Palmer course, and we play two games at at Nicholas North, Jack Nicholas course, and so I know that my raw score I'm probably not going to play. I entered, I entered in as an 18 handicap, and I'll tell you, it's it's I can shoot an 80, and then most days I shoot you know mid, mid 90s. So I'm like the worst nightmare for for entering a handicap game because realistically my handicap's 18, but I can really shoot a lot under that. <laughs> so. Uh, I tell these guys, you know, we're going to do skins, this and that. And so they're all fine with it, but I tell them the exact explanation I give you. So I have no skins until the ninth hole. And actually, the skins are kind of changing hands to two guys only. So we triple or we double the skins on the ninth hole for the whole back nine. Then we go three holes and no one gets it. So it's push, push, push. So now it's triple the skins three times. And then it's also. A long drive hole, which is also double the skins. <laughs> okay, and uh, yeah. to top this all off, we're we're playing a round of of wolf amidst amongst this. So I go wow. solo on the wolf round. <laughs> so now it's three times. Long and short of it is, <laughs> I get a birdie on a par five because I was on it two very easily. I had two easy putts to jam it in, uh, and I went 24 skins on a single hole.
0: <laughs> now, wow!
2: I didn't make. I didn't make any other skins on any other hole. And at the end of the round, all three of those guys owed me money. <laughs> so it was a little bit of saltiness, a little bit of saltiness. <laughs> no doubt. Did you have to run off the golf course and get into your car and take off? You know. <laughs> One of the guys, he just sent me an e-transfer just the other day. He just emailed me the money because he was so mad. He didn't want to talk to me for the last day of the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Um,
1: Marco, I want to talk about some of the philanthropic things that you've done and, and kind of getting back to um, the work that you've done with, uh, with Ernie Els and Els for Autism. Talk about how you first came in contact with Ernie.
2: Yeah, you know, back uh, oh man, it must have been twenty twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Uh, a business partner at the time, I was working for RBC. Uh, I was doing investment banking, and a business partner of mine, South African fellow, uh, says that you know Ernie Els does this tournament down in the states. They got about twenty of them across across the United States, and we want to bring one up to Canada. And so he's like, I, I think I've got it okayed. Uh, let's do this. So it was a real big process because. You know, there's a whole bunch of legal things that have to get transferred over, uh, you know, for websites and, and this and that. And, and it was a real big back end ordeal to get Ernie to come up to Canada. So we go about we get it done and I'm sort of part of the board and uh, we put it together one little tournament. Now, Ernie doesn't come up to ours, but the way the Ernie L's tournament works is the winners. It's a two uh, it's a Callaway scoring system 2 two person teams and the winners. Uh, or if you raise more than, I think it was $8,000 at the time, you get to go down to the finale and play with Ernie uh, and some of his PGA buds down in uh, Jupiter, Florida. Um, and so, uh, first year goes pretty well, so well that the next year comes about and we expand it across Canada to two other locations. Goes well so well that year, we expand it across to six locations. Um, and so we became, I think we raised in that one year, we raised a million dollars. And now what we did was in, in the States, all of the funds go towards, um, you know, our Ernie's facility down in Jupiter. Um, and what we did in Canada was we found similar facilities in each province that we played our tournament and we donated to those locations. So we're very proud to raise over a million bucks, um, over those few years. And, uh, and now it's, Scaled back a little bit. Obviously, things have changed a little bit in the world. So this year we weren't, we were unfortunately not able to run the tournament. We ran a, uh, it's coming up actually. It's an online poker event that we can do. Um, but but over the years, it's been real fun to, you know, uh, get number of people out here and send them down to meet with Ernie down there. And and you know, if you if you know Ernie, uh, he's a fun guy. Uh, not after the course when you played 19th toll with Ernie. 19th toll with Ernie is probably the most fun that you'll ever have with any golf associated figure that you've ever met.
0: Well, let's
1: talk about some of the other things that you've done, Marco, just a couple more before I let you go. And, and you've done work with the, with MS talk about some of the things you've done there and some of the other philanthropic work
0: you've done.
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, my very first charity event, when I won the great cup, you get, everyone gets the great cup for a few days, do what you want. I flew back to my hometown Calgary um, and and the big sort of, high scraper in the middle of downtown it's called the Calgary Tower and and I invited all the public out and all my coaches and all my friends and all my teammates that I played with you know minor football and I invited everyone out and uh you know we raised cash for um the Branch Out Neurological Foundation which which focuses on MS and Parkinson's um and I let everyone carry the great cup uh there's 800 steps to get to the top there's a cool video too it's online it's called climb for the cup um, and yeah, we every, let everyone carry it up. And and that was sort of the first moment where I realized I was having um, uh, a bigger impact than myself on the community of MS. Um, and then from there, it snowballed. I was later invited to be a, a member for the MS Society of, of BC. Um, and I still sit on that board today. And uh, they're kind of two different two different organizations. One focuses on holistic health and one focuses on more um resources and and I guess Western medicine. So uh best of both worlds type thing and and it's just really important to me because when I when I looked out there and the reason actually I got into autism too is, you know, the same way that I feel for my mother, um, you and, and all your listeners and anyone out there, you guys all everyone feels for someone in their life in that way. And so I felt it was selfish of me to just focus on M S. So while I did focus a lot of my time on MS, I started branching out and and helping uh, autism, and helping um, the Heart and Stroke Foundation, and uh, diabetes, and you name it. And, and I just, for me, it's all about having an impact, because we all go through certain things in our life, and and we all go through tough times. So I, I always find, you know, you give what you can when you can, uh, and we're all better for it. Marco, switching
1: gears just a little bit, talk about what it was like winning Canada's smartest person, and then Thing, and sort of the cherry on top is dropping the people's elbow for the winning moment.
2: <laughs> so, so this is actually really funny because our our kids now are are twelve, eight, six, and seven months. And so when I did that, that was yeah a few years ago now. Um, only our eldest really remembered it on TV. So we just pulled out the the DVD of that a few weeks back, and the kids got to watch it because they're into watching all these you know with the COVID. They're watching all sorts of uh, game shows that are on on Netflix, and so I'm like, oh, you know, I was on a game show. They're like, no way, daddy. So we we struck that thing up, and uh, and we sho- we showed them that I won the show there, and, and it w- it was a real neat experience. I mean, um, <laughs> television is television, right? So you guys see a, an hour long show, but we were filming there for for two days, from like seven a.m. till till basically ten o'clock at night um and there's all types of things like the games are actually the the true games like the lawyer comes out and says do you understand the rules yes you understand the rules okay the game starts now the host then all of a sudden it's action and the host says game starts," and you do the game but then in between that there's a whole bunch of b-roll stuff like they'll say oh hey marco can you say that joke again and, and you over there girl can you laugh a little bit harder or can you do some better clapping and so <laughs> there's a lot of production going on in the background of of playing this game. So, the reason I won it, and I kid you not, is because I, with athletic background, I've I played in front of people. I've had pressure. I've been able to turn it on, turn it off. We have TV breaks in football games and so on and so forth. And all these other people I was playing against were, yeah, they were Menta, uh, Menta members. Yeah, they were uh, surgeons. Yeah, they were very uh, astute people, but they did not know how to compete. And so, the reason I won it flat out was just because I was a competitor.
1: Marco, before I let you go, what you're doing now? You're with the beautiful game group. Talk about the things that mm-hmm. uh, you and that organization are getting involved with.
2: Yeah, so it it kind of links into everything we've talked about. Um, basically, we're we're a private equity group, and we're going out to buy professional sports teams. Uh, right now, we're looking at a, an NBA team, uh, an Italian soccer team, a Spanish soccer team, uh, an esports team. We have a rugby team. So. It's any any sport that is global growth orientated. But our, our key differentiator is that we're trying to make, focus the teams on, on impact um, and the organization on impact. I mean, you, it should go hand in hand that these teams are servicing the communities and providing an entertainment for them and providing role models. Um, but somewhere along the way with sponsorships and ownership changes and management changes, a lot of these teams have lost that at their core. Um, so we're really focused on, on doing sort of a, a B Corp um, uh, full ESG focused on environmental sustainability and governance and really, really, really at its core servicing the community and then building organizations. Cause when you look at the best uh, attended sporting teams and the best traveled fans, it's because they care so much about their team and they care so much about their community and it means so much to them. So we're just, Going out trying to instill that. So check us out, beautifulgamegroup.com, and 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 reach out to me there if you want to learn more or be a part of what we're doing.
1: So Marco, let our listeners know how else they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you on social media as well.
2: Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to see. I-, I love following everyone back because I think it's it's it, social media is so cool, especially during COVID times. But even before that, um, I-, I love following people, and seeing what you're into uh you can follow me on you know Instagram Twitter Facebook it's just it's just last name and then first name minuti marco um and and like i said uh i'd love to actually see what you're doing on there because i i've met even through your show uh you know uh, so many a few people have followed me and i i followed them back and all of a sudden i've built relationship with people across north america that i'd never met in person but i feel like i know and have at least a, a pulse on what they're doing and the impact they're having so uh, i'd love love to see some of you out there too
1: Oh well, Marco, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come in back and uh, be a part of this show. You've been fantastic over on Thursday Night Tailgate, and I'm so glad I get the opportunity to talk to you here on the golf show. I hope you'll come back. There's a whole lot more I'd like to get into with you. I hope you come back and share more of your stories and insights
2: with us. Hey, you can count me in any time. And when, when this whole virus thing is over with, we got to play around together for sure.
0: There you go. Marco,
1: take care. Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon.
2: Thanks, pal. Cheers. See you, Marco.
1: That's a great Marco Ianuti. And folks, a, a more philanthropic guy you will not find, and a more fun guy as well. And he's, he, like I say, he's been fantastic to us over the years on the football side. Great to have Marco here on the golf side. And keep your eyes on beautiful golf, uh, beautiful game group, His new, uh, his new organization. Sounds very exciting for the things that they're going to get involved with in buying up sports teams. And, and uh, hopefully uh, we get the opportunity to have Marco back on the show and give us an update for how that's going. Maybe we can get him to buy the Washington Redskins or whatever their new nickname is going to be. We could certainly use uh, some help over there. So looking forward to catching up with Marco again real soon. All right. Before I get to my next guest, Damon Hack, I want to give a shout out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world. And that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and the feedback investment clubs simply can not provide. And their craftsmen micro-manufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You'll only find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment online at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them there today to learn about their great products and their great prices. And, folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore.
0: This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at
2: PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now
1: joining me here on Next on the Tee is Golf Channel Morning Drive host Damon Hack. Let me give you some more background on Damon. He's from L.A., graduated from ucla with his undergraduate degree in uc berkeley with his master's degree in journalism started out covering the san francisco 49ers for the sacramento b in 2000 he moved over to newsday covering the new york knicks and golf 2002 he joined the new york times covering golf and the nfl 2007 joined sports illustrated covering golf and the nfl for them as well joined the golf channel back in 2012 he currently works on his golfing with our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, and I'm very honored to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tea. Hey, Damon, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Chris, what's going on, buddy? How are you?
1: I'm
2: fantastic, Damon. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, man. Just uh, hanging out on a Tuesday. Got back from Lake Tahoe where I did a interesting race and in Sports in America discussion. I also was doing interviews at the American Century at beautiful Edgewood. I'm back on Morning Drive tomorrow, so uh, life is good.
1: So yeah, I want to get into a lot of what you just mentioned. I want to I want to start by uh, trying to get some feedback from you. When did you meet TP, and what do you when did you guys start working together?
0: Oh, Tom Patrick. I met TP. We're going on a decade now. It, it might even be longer than that. I want to say it was probably 2009. I was working at Sports Illustrated. I was speaking at the Masters at one of those kind of sales houses where, you know, they want to bring in a golf rider to come in and talk to some folks that are affiliated with the tournament who have come in as guests of the tournament. So I did a little talk, um, told some stories about being a golf rider. Uh, One of the gentlemen named Alan Citrin a uh, good buddy of mine now, but I didn't even know him at the time. He just came up to me. We started talking. He appreciated my talk, wanted to know where I was from. He told me he's from Pittsburgh, is a, a member of a club there uh, outside of Pittsburgh called Oakmont that uh, you might have heard of. And he goes, you got to come to Oakmont <laughs> and play. I was like, man, you don't, you don't have to twist my arm. I'll, I'll I'll, gladly come to Oakmont to play. So I go to Oakmont, play golf with Alan. I'm introduced to the great Bob Ford, head professional long time at oakmont and Seminole, and you know bob and i are talking and now and we're talking damon you know who do you work with so i go well i live in new york i don't work with anybody who should i work with bob and bob goes well i have a pal named tom patrick who happens to be in new york so i've been stuck with tp for more than a decade
1: ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, god knows god bless you um <laughs>
0: so but he's fantastic. So target- We've become pals yeah, and, and, and he's a fantastic teacher. We we give each other a lot of stick, but I love the man and uh you know, we talk about a lot more than golf. He's helped me quite a bit with my game. Uh but we talk about life. We've been out to dinner with he and his wife Denise. I've met his son P J, they've met my boys and, and my wife Susanna, so uh he's he's not just my pro, he's my pal. And Damon, like you say,
1: you, you've been covering golf now for 20 plus years. T- talk about your roots in the game. When did you first get introduced to the game of golf? When did you first start playing?
0: Yeah, I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley from 94 to 96. And a lot of the students there um, that I happened to be friends were into the game of golf. I had played maybe once or twice in college when I was at UCLA. Tiger started winning U.S. Amateurs, in fact, concurrently to my time at Berkeley, '94, '95, and '96, he won three straight U.S. Amateurs. Was so starting to become a bit of a known uh, entity. I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, going to school. He was at Stanford, so I started to read about this young man from Southern California, multicultural background, and I had not played golf as a kid. Golf is not something that was a part of my upbringing. I uh, was not on television in my house. My parents didn't play. No one in my family played. So it was really through Tiger that I got into golf, um, started to read about the history of the game, uh, wanted to write about the game and, and read about the great writers like uh, Dan Jenkins. You think of Dave Anderson. You think of Frank DeFord, Rick Riley, Mike uh, Bamberger. There were These were guys that I started to read, uh, you know, Golf Digest magazine, Sports Illustrated. And, uh, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm starting to play the game and shoot my little 110s and 120s and, and still loving the challenge of trying to, to conquer the unconquerable game. Let's
1: talk about, you know, how you got your start at the Golf Channel. And, Damon, one of the, one of the amazing things I think about you and as I was doing the research on you is you, you wrote about the game for a long time. And then you make the transition to the Golf Channel. And now you're in front of the camera and you seem very relaxed. And very at home in front of the camera. What was it? What was the transition like from for you going from writing about the game to being in front of the camera talking about the game?
0: Yeah, you know, in 2012, um, I was still writing at Sports Illustrated when I got uh, a call from Golf Channel, and there were some folks that had worked in the golf magazine side of it. Uh, Jeff Russell, who was uh, one of the editors at Golf Digest, his wife. Molly Solomon, who's the executive producer at Golf Channel, they were looking for some some new blood, looking to expand the roster, as it were. And I had known Jeff just from the writing world. And he said, would you be interested in coming down from, from New York to Florida to kind of try out for a week and, and you know, sit on morning drive with Gary Williams and, and talk about golf? We chose a week. It actually happened to fall right after the U.S. Open at Olympic Club. So... That was the year Webb Simpson won. He beat Graham McDowell and and Jim Furyk and some guys that were in the hunt. I think Tiger actually held a 36 hole lead, if I recall. And uh, next thing you know, I'm flying on Monday after that U.S. Open from San Francisco to Florida, sit across from Gary Williams on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and I got offered a job that evening. Um, my agent called me and said, "Damon, they're they're going to offer you a job." And I was I was shocked, surprised, thrilled. Because at the time, Sports Illustrated was offering buyouts. Because, as, as many of your listeners know, and you as well, just the landscape of media changing, advertising dollars not quite there for for print media as it as it was in the past. So, I had an opportunity. We like to stay in Florida. My wife and I had come and visited, uh, you know, throughout our our time together. So we we're like, why not give it a shot? So we we moved down here, and in 2012, I've, I've been here for eight years now. And you know, I didn't know I would make a, a a life in television as I have. It's it's definitely it's different than writing. It's a lot harder than I thought it would be. I used to think as a writer, all those TV guys just get up there and talk but you've got a producer in your ear and you've got to throw the commercial, bring it out of break, uh, tossing to sound, bites and different things that I never really appreciated until I was the guy standing in front of the camera with the red light on. So it took some time. It took some reps just like anything. It's like the game of golf itself. The The more I sat in front of the camera, I feel like the better I got, the more comfortable I got. And, and I'm definitely thankful and, and really just appreciative to be able to talk about a game that I love so much.
1: And Damon, we've seen you a bunch doing the, the golf Academy segments. And you, you've probably done thousands of tips or been a part of those segments with thousands of different tips and, and, probably the best instructors in the world kind of going over a bunch of different things. Now, if that were me, I would now have a thousand different swing thoughts, you know, whenever I'm doing something, how do you, how do you block some of that out and not let your game, your swing become a wreck when you're listening to all of those different tips?
0: Early on, Chris, I, I think I kind of did get swayed by uh, the guest of the week uh, who had a, a you know, five minutes to, to kind of explain his or her philosophy. And I don't want to say that all of it, you know, not relatable to me or didn't help me, but I think you can start to chase your tail a little bit. So as time went on, I kind of just viewed the segments as they were. This was five minutes to explain this teacher's philosophy. Um, you don't have to follow it yourself. You don't have to go out and try it that day, because I think you can get to some real uh, bad habits you don't want to stand on a tee box with, with 10 different thoughts. And I think one of the great things I've found with, with, with TP, uh, is that, I, you know, I don't have a lot of swing thoughts. we have, have, we have a few things that we worked on and I've worked with him off and on for 10 years now. So, so he knows my swing. Well, uh, we kind of co- go back to a lot of the same things. I've got great V1 video lessons that I've kept from Tom and, it's it's funny. Even as as you know, you get a little older, your body changes. Some of those faults that you have had, you know, a decade ago, can still come back. But it, I tell you what, for a while, I even said it. I'm like, man, I'm getting confused. Too many swing thoughts. Too many different guests. My job is to ask questions and inquire. You know, one person says use your body in the short game. The other person wants you to be more handsy. Uh, you know, and the next thing you know, you're you're kind of stuck between different philosophies. So. For me, I'm 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 TP ride or die at this point, and if we have guests <laughs> that talk about instruction, uh, uh, they do their thing. I listen. I try to filter out, you know, what I can, and uh, I'm sticking with my guy.
1: Damon, as you mentioned uh, at the top, you hosted a very important show that aired last night on the Golf Channel, Racing Sports in America. You had several really great athletes on the show, people like Ozzy Smith, Charles Barkley, Steph Curry, James Blake, Troy Mullins, Anthony Lynn, Jimmy Rollins, and Kyle Rudolph. What was it like for you as the host of those two different panels on such an important topic like that? Talk about, you know, being the host and then some of the things that, uh, that you guys talked about.
0: Yeah, I was really thankful for the opportunity. It's been about a month or so that I wrote a column uh, for golfchannel.com kind of expressing my sadness as an African-American man for uh, for the death of George Floyd and how I was, you know, nearing the age of 50 myself and was kind of feeling almost like a surreal sense of sadness that some of the same conversations that my dad had had with me, I was having with my children. And I just kind of felt sad. I felt a little bit empty. My wife said, why don't you write a column? So I wrote a column. And the next thing you know, uh, I'm receiving wonderful notes and, and feedback and people are saying, you know what, let's let's pull together, let's let's have these discussions on race. Let's let's do better as a as a society and a country. And, and I've actually been really kind of emboldened, excited, optimistic about some of these conversations I've been allowed to have and uh after my column and some discussions with my bosses, they, you know, invited me to host this remarkable panel of, of the assets that you just mentioned, um, from throughout different sports, and it was just a a great experience for me to kind of tee them up on questions here and there. But, but Chris, I didn't even speak that much. It was great to let them talk and to have interactions and explain their own truths about the complexity of being, you know, maybe you're a wealthy African-American, but you have pain for the African-American community, and and you want to see uh, changes for the good. And, uh, you know, I I received some notes that said, oh, why is this on Golf Channel? I just want to watch golf. And why is everybody whining? And I said, listen, this is I said, watch the show. There, there's no whining going on. There's a lot of optimism. There are people that that want to see our country live, live up to its, to its potential and to its creed. So I walked away from Lake Tahoe very excited and very happy that uh, NBC allowed us to kind of take a chance and talk about some. Some complex things because some people rather just oh let's not talk about this let's let you know I'm tired of talking about this and and clearly there there are changes that need to happen and I'm and I'm glad that we had you know a, a female on the show a, a white male and Kyle Rudolph who said, you know what it did me good to sit down with my African American teammate and, and and learn to have to, to hear those stories so I thought Charles Barkley was wonderful Jimmy Rollins Ozzie, uh you know Steph Troy. Anthony, uh, Kyle, James, everyone shared their truth. But I think everyone also walked away, you know, not dour or down, but actually excited about the future and, and hoping that people of all stripes, from all backgrounds, uh, can kind of roll in the same direction.
1: And, Damon, as you mentioned, everybody got an opportunity to share their truth. You've had your own experiences being treated differently, being pulled over on the New Jersey Turnpike for no reason, being frisked outside your own house as a young man. Do you mind sharing some of the things that that you've had to deal with being an African-American male?
0: Sure, Chris, and people were surprised that I had had any issues or run-ins with the police, you know, considering I've never even smoked pot, I've never done drugs, I I, um, live a clean and very positive life. But I've been pulled over and, and searched for drugs or weapons in my car. The, the cop asked me point blank if I had drugs or weapons in my car. I've been frisked in front of my mom's house uh, back when I was about probably 20 years old. Um, one of the neighbor's alarms went off, and my mom and I, the neighbor, said, we used to tell the police that, you know, I actually set off my alarm. So my mom and I go out to the front of the house to greet the, 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 the apartment complex to tell the, the police, oh, our neighbor... She accidentally set off her alarm, and the cop sees me and starts frisking me. And my mom's like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, and, and so, and then I got pulled over on the New Jersey turnpike, and the cops said, oh, there was a dog loose. He saw me with three white friends and realized we weren't any threat. And I got pulled over once while driving home from uh, a summer internship in Fornia, and that uh, didn't break any laws. No tags were out of date. No broken taillights. It was just because. Uh, Some of us call it driving while black. And so I wrote my truth and I was like, listen, I'm thankful for the job I have. I'm thankful for the life I have. But man, it's a reminder and it's painful to have to to have to deal with these situations. When I respect law enforcement, when my cousin is FBI retired, when my wife's cousin is active NYPD, imagine the conflict I feel to have such love and respect and honor for are you know those who protect and serve but then also have had my own personal uh, situation so i even wrote this i said can i be both thankful and and, and horrified at at the state of uh police relationships at times uh, with the african-american community so i've talked to people i would say 95 percent have been thank you for sharing your truth some people say oh you're whining what do you have to complain about you're on tv and i say hey i'm on tv two hours a day when i'm not on tv I'm a six foot three bald headed black man in a a largely white community. So I do my best to try to be honest. And I'm not, I didn't write the column to to bitch and moan. I wrote the column to share my truth and to be honest, because I feel like if I wasn't being honest, just to be sitting on TV and smiling every morning, uh, wasn't doing myself or, or my colleagues justice. And and, I got to say page, Mackenzie, Robert Dameron, Anna Whiteley, Lauren Thompson, all appreciated what I had to say. They know me. They know my heart. Um, And it's been it's been really cathartic to be able to share some things that otherwise I would have kept to myself. And and no one at home would have been uh, any the wiser. And,
1: David, let's take that just a a step further, because, you know, as you say, you wrote and you tweeted about this. You know, can I smile on TV and be somber when the camera is off? Can I have laughter in the morning and tightness in my chest at night? Talk about what causes that range of emotion for you.
0: Yeah, it's uh it, it was amazing to to be feeling so happy and so blessed and, and, and so thankful to be in the position that I am, uh and and to love my job, but to have this kind of hollow feeling that I'm hearing the echoes of my my grandfather who moved my family from the South in the 1950s after Emmett Till was killed. Um, a 14-year-old boy who was accused of whistling at a white woman, and he was killed. And his, his mom had an open casket to show the the devastation that his son went through, the the, the the bludgeoning that he took. My family moved from Memphis, Tennessee to California because of that incident. And that's a story that I was told. And here I am, a 48-year-old man watching a, 46-year-old black dude who doesn't look that different than me, you know, being choked out for eight minutes and 46 seconds. So, uh, and thankful that my interactions with the police never escalated to that point. But like, why do I have to be extra smiley when I'm running, or jogging in the neighborhood or like, you know, when I'm in an elevator and I see someone looking a little nervous, hi, you know, like it's one thing to be Damon Hack on on television. But, you know, if I'm going for a jog and I'm wearing jogger shorts and a T-shirt, people don't know me from from Adam. So those are the conflicting things that 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 I think some people might not realize that that African-Americans go through or that some minorities go through. And I just it can be conflicting, but it's also really to me, it's been positive just to hear so many people say, wow, Damon, I know you. I know your heart. You're only doing this because you want to help. You want to share things. And, and I think this is a multicultural movement. I don't think this is, you know, all is black people that want. I, I feel like this is white people and, and multicultural people that want us to do better. And if you look at these protests, and I'm for peaceful protests, by the way, if anyone has any doubt, um, I think they've been multicultural. I think they've been largely led by, by white people, white Americans, and, and it's not like it's all black people that are marching. So I feel like, and a lot of the people said this on the show last night, that this is a multicultural movement that people just want to see us do better. Uh, it's the greatest country in the world. I don't want to live anywhere else, but I also feel like as a young country, uh, we still have some growing up to do, and there's nothing wrong with loving your country and wanting your country to be a little bit better.
1: And Damon Charles Barkley last night also talked about how economics plays into the issue. Do you see that as well when you know, if you look back like to the time when you were an intern, you were perceived one way, but now that you're on the Golf Channel, you're perceived a different way?
0: Absolutely. I, and I think Charles put it really really well. Uh, you know, he says, "I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me." And I feel the same way. I don't want anybody to start to feel sorry for me either. Uh, I have a wonderful life, but I also I feel pain for people, you know, anyone who's struggling, anyone who's poor, and, and and just because you know, yes, there's black poverty, white poverty, poverty's power. If you're poor, you're poor, and and I think that's what Charles Barkley's point. But I think if you're poor and black, it's like it it just seems to be. If you look at the history of our country, it, it's like a double whammy. It's especially hopeless. So. I guess Charles's point was, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Can we can we fix some of the problems in the inner city? Can we have a situation where the educational opportunities are there? And he says that this COVID pandemic has only exacerbated the the problems in in poor neighborhoods because those are folks that don't have access to internet. You know, he say, oh well, you can do homeschool. Well, does every child in, in the inner city have a computer or Internet or an iPad or if you have four kids, do you have four iPads? I mean, so he brought up a lot of the economic aspects. And I think that was that was really, really a, a good point as well, and talked about athletes giving back more. And I, and I think a lot of athletes are are expressing themselves uh, and I'm glad to see it. You know, some people think oh athletes shouldn't talk about these things. They should just, you know, shoot the hoop or hit the puck or, or you know, swing the club. Uh I'm thankful that, that a lot of athletes are using their voices because you know what? Arthur Ashe did, and Billie Jean King and Jackie Robinson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar um, and, and many others in the past. So I, I uh, I'm, I'm glad that the eight uh, you know, folks in sports who joined me yesterday uh, wanted to use uh, their voice and, and share their truth. And, and they're not trying to hurt me. They're trying to help this country.
1: And Damon, one of the things that Troy Mullins, who's an African-American female and a world long drive competitor, one of the things that she said really struck me. She said, we've lost some of our humanity because we're so into our phones and so into ourselves that we become so unfeeling that something that could happen, like the George Floyd incident or what happened to James Blake when he was tackled by police officers and knelt on, and, and a case that ended up being mistaken identity that uh, that happened with him. But that sort of loss of humanity because we've become so into ourselves. Do you think, is that a part of the problem? Have we lost sort of connection with each other a little bit due to technology?
0: I think we have. Chris, I thought that was one of the more powerful moments and poignant moments of our discussion was when she said that. Because I hadn't thought of that and I hadn't been thinking about that. But just the fact that we are a little bit desensitized uh, because of technology, uh, because we are so into ourselves there does seem to be a bit of a loss of, of, of humanity there. I, I think we sadly have a pretty violent culture through through television and movies. I think it's a multi-layered issue when you're talking about that. Uh, I, I do think that this death was especially shocking. Most of us, because of the pandemic, were sitting at home. Uh there's nothing else to do but watch it or read about it or or see it on Twitter or, or your, whatever social media handle you use. But I do think that There has been a loss of humanity. I I do think that we are probably a little bit more selfish than maybe we were 15, 20 years ago because of technology. Uh, Maybe there's some good that can come out of this awful year. It's just been such a challenge for so many people. Uh, I know that people are in a lot worse shape than I am. People that are are looking for a next job, trying to feed their families. Again, I don't I don't have much to complain about. I'm 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 not a complainer, I'm not a whiner. Uh, I'm I'm hoping that uh these conversations from the struggles that a lot of people are dealing with, we can find more common ground and more humanity. And and I do believe from the conversations I've had for people inside golf, I'm talking USGA, PGA of America, PGA Tour. There are some pretty powerful people in high places that want to see golf take a leading role, want to see sports take a role. After all, and Anthony Lynn said this, you know, gosh, think about sports teams and, and how you have people from different parts of the world that can join an offensive line and, and pull together. You know, players from the south, from the north, from the east, from the west, and as the coach said, people that are grown up to hate each other are are they become brothers. And and when I asked him, what would you like this country to look like? And to be like a year from now, he said, "I'd like to be like a football team, where everybody is pulling in the same direction, regardless of the skin color, and and people have empathy and sympathy and love for one another." And I think that goes back to what Troy said—that humanity that's been lost uh, needs to be found again.
1: And Damon, to that point, right? One of the things that uh, you guys talked about, and I think we've talked about over the years as a society, is sports sort of unites us. It it brings us together and and it has the opportunity to lead the way you mentioned Jackie Robinson a moment ago, and 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 the important role that he played in sports, bringing us you know to a, a next level. Uh, players like Charlie Sifford and Lee Elder on the PGA Tour. Talk about the role you think sports can play to help us come together.
0: Yeah, I think it has throughout society. I mean, you look at Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in 1947. That was you know, long before the end of, of Jim Crow in, in our country and, and, and seeing how the Brooklyn Dodgers and Branch Rickey, you know, treated him and signed him. And, and then, of course, he had to go out and perform and, and he did. And, and, and Charlie Sipper getting a late start to his PJ Tour career, um, and winning a couple times, not starting until his 40s to, you know, well past his prime. But I do think that sports can play a role. And, and I know that, you know, what's been so interesting to me, Chris, is I, I feel like there are a lot of people that just are confused or don't want to talk about these things. Um, and it's not about accusing white people of being um, racist. You know, I, I think it's, it's just about listening. It's about listening and being open to, to, uh, to maybe someone else's truth and someone else's pain. And I think that uh, the more listening that happens on all sides, man, everybody can talk these days. Everybody's got a cell phone. Everybody can fire off a tweet. Um, But the the more we can listen as a society, the more we can kind of pull and row in the same direction. And and gosh, I I do think that sports, you know, we we miss that. We miss seeing, you know, teammates pulling together, regardless of their background, all for the same goal. And I I do think that, uh, you know, if, if history is any judge, uh, when sports comes back, you know you'll see uh, sports serve a role, uh, and usually a positive one, and kind of uh, you know part of the pun, but but pushing the foot positive and together path.
1: Damon, just a couple more before I let you go. And you talked about earlier uh, feeling optimistic, and I know you know Charles Barkley last night said you're either hopeful or you're hopeless. It's either A or B, and he always wants to be optimistic and. You said tonight, and and I think you said, you know, last night that you emerged from the conversations feeling optimistic. Talk about why.
0: Yeah, you know why? Because I work in a game of honor. I work in a game where, you know, gosh, everyone I meet, almost every single person I've met in golf, I like, Um, I feel like in my realm, in my little world of golf, that People want to do the right thing. We're taught to follow the rules in this game. We're, fought, we're taught to, to play by the rules, to call penalties on ourselves, to look out for the rest of the field. And I feel like because of that, there are people that are of good heart and good mind that want to come together in what's been a painful year and do something positive. And I've seen it. I've, seen, I've been on Zoom calls with executives and people of all stripes do things large and small. And and I think that's just what gives me hope is that people that I I was afraid of sharing my story and not had no idea what kind of reaction I would get. And you know what? Hey, you're not going to please everybody. That's fine. Uh, I know some people don't like what I've had to say, but I tell you what most people do. and, And if I get in a room with them and talk to them and even on Instagram today, someone said, you know, why are, you know, why are, these millionaires talking about this. Like, well, these these are the people that are asked the question and they have a voice and they come from these neighborhoods. They they bring a perspective. So you're going to have a little turbulence here and there. Not everybody's going to agree with you. That's fine. Everyone has an entitled to their opinion. But I just think in our game, uh, you know, no matter your 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 political stripe, that you you want to do good. And and I think that most people are coming together to just try to find some common ground. And most of the reception I've received from the show, from my column, uh, from the the strife of this year is that people want to come out on the other side uh, with a smile, with optimism, and with us being better. I, I say it all the time. I love my country. Uh, our country's young, and we can continue to get better and better, and I believe that we will.
1: Damon, uh, before I let you go, first of all, um, with all the news about the Golf Channel, are, are you uh, you moving north? We're going to find you up in Stanford?
0: To be uh, one of the, the, the fortunate ones to go. I'm sad to see the end of a of a wonderful era down here. Uh, Orlando's been home for eight years now plus. And obviously, you know, you think of what Arnold Palmer built and Joe Gibbs and, and just the wonderful run it's been down here but uh you know this is kind of the realities of of the media world and uh we're shifting gears joining uh the, be closer to the nbc sports family up in stanford uh but we'll still do a lot of the same things we do we just talk about this great game um i'm fortunate to get to travel from time to time cover some tournaments and i'm very very much looking forward to uh to the next chapter for the channel and, and for me personally and um it's going to be uh I have an old home return. I lived in New York for 12 years. My wife's family's in New York so we'll be up in the Connecticut area most likely. And shorter golf season but very passionate fans up there as you know. So I'll uh, look for a couple places to play and get reacquainted with some courses that I used to play and we'll uh, see if we can break 80 up there if it doesn't happen down here.
1: Damon, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing whether it's you continue to write an article from time to time or all the great stuff you're doing with the golf channel. How can they follow you on social media?
0: Well, I appreciate that. I'm at, at DamonHackGC and also at Goats and Grape, which is my uh, little uh, hobby, side hobby, where I the intersection of wine and sports. Goats being greatest of all time. So it's at DamonHackGC and at Goats and Grape.
1: Damon, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and be a part of the show. You're fantastic. I hope we get the privilege of uh, catching up with you again soon, hearing more of your stories, hearing more of your insights. You're fantastic.
0: Well, that's kind of you, Chris. I appreciated the conversation and, and the platform, and I hope we can do it again soon.
1: Damon, stay safe. All the best to you and your family. Uh, like I say, we'll uh, hopefully get the opportunity to to catch up soon and uh, keep, keep it up with TP. I, you got to keep him honest, right? You got to let me know. Keep him <laughs> honest because you know what
0: he can oh, be like I'm when he can moving. get your goat. I'm stuck with him and he's right, stuck take with you. me. <laughs> See you soon. Take care, Damon.
1: That's a great Damon hack, folks. And, um, boy, it just really doesn't get much better than that. So much to, to digest. And he did such a wonderful job uh, moderating the panels last night on the show, Race and Sports in America. One of the things that I that I loved about what I saw last night and then what I heard here on the show tonight, optimism, right? Hope. It was it's a very important topic. We have a very long way to go in this country um, and it is a universal movement. And uh, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we are going to continue to move in a positive direction. And the country and all of us are going to get better and better in this area. We, we have to. And that's sort of the bottom line. We have to. We have to do better. I think having a historical perspective that this is a young country is a, is a very interesting one because it is true, um, but we should be a lot further along than we are right now, and that's the bottom line. And we all have to do better, and we all have to come together, and um, and to make this, you know, kind of what what he mentioned about that Anthony Lynn talked about, all pulling in the same direction. We're all one team, and we have to really realize that and uh And come together as as a country, come together as a people, to be better, and to realize we all are created equal, and um, if we can realize that and start to row in the same direction, what a wonderful place this will be, what an unstoppable country we will be so i uh, I hold his optimism very dear, and I, and I join him in that optimism that uh, we are going to see change and we are going to move forward and we are going to come together and we are, we are going to be better for it. So hopefully we get the privilege of having Damon back on the show again soon, hear more of his stories and his insights, really enjoyed the time with him. Uh, and then TP, you know, when you think about uh, he's, he's working with TP, who is that, uh, who's outstanding TP, you know, I love you. So uh, we look forward to TP will be back on the show again next week. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about this segment as well. All right, before I close up shop tonight, I want to give a shout out to one of our new sponsors, Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give another shout-out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore mountaintop community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts, the resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, Mclemore offers stay and play packages for guests in club managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit Mclemore online at themclamore.com or give them a call at 800. 800- 3298154 All right folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks to Marco Iannucci and Damon Hack for being a part of the show tonight. Please check out our website nextonthet.net to keep up to date with what our guest schedule is looking like. You can stream this show as a podcast on so many great sites podcast.co. Can't thank them enough for all the help that they've given us in uh, developing the show and, and, and bringing it to a broader audience. We're on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm, and I also want to welcome Radio.com as a new platform offering the show as a podcast as well. Folks, thank you for uh, for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We appreciate the fact that you continue to make us a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friend.